I'm Dahlia Marin, registered dietitian nutritionist, along with my husband, James Marin, registered dietitian, environmental nutritionist. We are experts in plant-based nutrition, gut health for adults and kids, and we're here with SoFlo Vegan. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I'm Sean Russell, the founder of SoFlow Vegans, and if this is your first time listening, be sure to check out soflowvegans.com slash podcast to see and listen to some of our past episodes. And thank you for listening. James and Dahlia Myron from Married to Health join us to talk about differences between dietitians and nutritionists, vegan myths, gut health, SIBO, raising a vegan child, their project with Dr. Angie Sadeghi, and influencers leaving the vegan lifestyle, as well as other topics. Remember to subscribe and leave reviews to help our show continue to grow. We also launched a Patreon to help us continue our mission of making South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. You can show your support starting at $2 a month. Help us reach our goal of getting to 100 patrons by the end of the year. Perks include exclusive behind the scenes content, shout outs on our podcast, and the ability to ask questions directly to future guests. Joining us again for this podcast is our media coordinator, Alba Mendez. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our podcast with James and Dahlia Marin, Married to Health. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. We're so glad you joined us. And if this is your first time, make sure you stop by our website, soflowvegans.com slash podcast. See all of the great episodes we've had in the past. But let's get out of the past and step into the present. And before we introduce our guest, I want to introduce our co-host for this podcast and she's going to introduce her guest so co-host take it away hi my name is co-host aka alba i am the co-host for the soflo vegan podcast along with sean and i'm very super excited the guests that we have married husband and wife duo amazing people let's welcome married to health james and dahlia baron yeah, we're so excited to be here. So yeah, my name is James Marin. I'm a holistic registered dietitian, environmental nutritionist. I'm Dahlia Marin, registered dietitian nutritionist. We specialize in gut health for adults and kids, and we are also experts in plant-based nutrition. Yeah. And we have a, a private practice here in uh, Newport Beach, California. We're also the co-founders of one of the first whole food plant-based IBS SIBO protocols called Your Gut Connection. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you all might be familiar with our amazing partner, Dr. Angie Sadeghi, who's a gastroenterologist. So together as a team, we cover all things gut health. So, awesome. so I, me personally, like I've, in my travels, I've heard so much about gut health in the last couple of months mm-hmm. and you know how important it is to monitor and be aware um, of your gut. So can you just tell us a very high level overview, like why is it important for us to be cognizant of our gut health? Yeah. So I guess I'll kind of start and then Dali can fill in any, any gaps I leave, but essentially what we're finding and why we became very, very interested in this topic is gut health is essentially the root of all health, right? And so when it comes to your gut, you're talking about 70 plus percent of your immune system. You're talking about 
90 plus percent of your serotonin production. You're talking about your gut making different proteins and different vitamins and different short chain fatty acids. So what we're finding is your gut is really the key. It's the portal to health because it is the portal that connects the outside world to the inside world, which is the human body. And for years, we thought the brain was in control of our actions, our emotions, our thoughts. But now we're actually finding that there are more signals going from gut to brain than from brain to gut. And Mm -hmm. so people say you are what you eat. It's really you are what your microbes eat and produce and express. And so we understand now that Mm -hmm. your gut health, all that the bacteria, the protozoa, the archaea, all those organisms living in your gut really do control much more than we ever knew before. And more than 50% of the research on the gut just came out in the last two years. So like you said, you're hearing more and more about the gut because we're finally starting to research the gut more and really understand its importance in our health. Yeah. And um, so what is the correlation? Because, you know, I'm hearing a lot of health, you know, in this conversation of you monitoring your health and you being healthy, how do we draw that correlation between adopting a vegan diet and the gut? You know, how, what, where does that direct connect? Yeah. So, you know, we see patients every day in our office and I would say quite a few of them will tell us, you guys are my fourth or fifth consult. My gastroenterologist told me that what I eat has nothing to do with my gut health. Um, It has nothing to do with my IBS or my IBD, my irritable bowel disease, but we know it's quite the contrary. The substance and the substrates that you put into your mouth travel throughout your entire gut. So people don't realize your gut is everything mouth to anus. It's all connected. It's all one big tube and it's kind of long and tortuous. It kind of twists and turns in certain places and it's separated by these little doors or they're called um, sphincters, but um, it's all connected. So what you put in your mouth, that begins its journey down your entire gastrointestinal tract. It goes down your esophagus, into your stomach, small intestine, large intestine. And all of that is either going to have byproducts or it's going to generate anti-inflammatory properties or inflammatory properties. So you're either healing with each meal and that's kind of a a term we coined, uh, heal with each meal, or, you know, you can kind of cause damage with each meal. So it's really up to you and what's going in. Then I'll add, you know, to connect that directly to veganism or, or more specifically a whole food plant-based diet is the fact that time after time with new research and even some of the old research, and we're at how many conferences that we go to this year, about like three, and we're hearing, and we even presented on some gut research you know, we're hearing that it's about diversity. It's about more plant foods. Mm-hmm. We were at this uh, International Microbiota for Health Conference in Miami, Florida. That's when we met you out there. That's when we met. When I, we were at the, out there. Yeah, so we're out that way. And we heard from researchers from France, researchers from China, researchers yeah. from Israel, and everywhere. And the consensus was eat more plants. Mm. We have to rethink the low FODMAP diet. We need mm. dietitians on board with these doctors and so you know we're all sitting in the audience and we have this practice with an amazing doctor dr sadegi and then us dietitians we're looking at each other like we're we're on the cutting yeah, edge you know dr b was there at the gut health md doc serena was there so we were like the only plant-based people there it wasn't a plant-based conference we were like yeah we're doing it right, right. <laughs> you so, guys are pretty 
like you said, at the forefront of this movement, quote unquote. And I think it's so crazy that we've even gotten away from eating plants where now we have to tell people like, hey, research shows you should actually eat plants, whether or not people are on a completely plant-based diet, which we've seen is optimal for gut health, or, you know, we're really trying to now move away from that standard American diet where people weren't even eating any plants. <laughs> no, pretty much the only plant was fries or yeah. in a potato. Yeah. 97% of Americans don't get enough fiber. And so the fiber recommendations are already extremely low. It's what, 15 to 25 grams a day. That's nothing. That's like two to three servings of veggies a day. We're not 97% of people are not meeting that recommendation. And so we're doing something wrong. And that's why we're seeing yeah, like I said, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome on the rise, IBD on the rise. We're seeing Crohn's, colitis, all these um, inflammatory diseases on the rise. It's starting to become one of the top reasons people visit their doctor, visit the ER, visit urgent care. Let's bring it back now. Um, you guys mentioned, obviously, we all know that you're registered dietitians. Now, mm-hmm. we have two words. What is the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Yes. Yeah. So you guys heard, I call myself a registered dietitian nutritionist. So we are uh, in our licensure. We're allowed to pick if we want to be registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist. I opted for the latter because so many more people know what a nutritionist is than a dietitian. People have never heard the word dietitian. However, it varies from state to state. We live in California and we're unfortunately in one of the very few states, one of the where dietitians don't have license. We have um, certificates. But because of that, that term nutritionist really is open to anyone to use. If you guys are nutritionists, did you know that? In In California, you can say I'm a nutritionist. So anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. And we all know we're all on social media. How many pages do you go to? And they say, I'm a a nutritionist, right? And everyone nowadays is a nutritionist because there really is not, you don't need certification to be a nutritionist. There are some registered nutritionists or certified nutritionists, mm-hmm. licensed nutritionists, but that varies on even how much licensing they got or certification. It could have been like a two hour course or, you know, it really varies. So as a registered dietitian, you need to obtain either your bachelor's, your master's, your doctorate degree in nutrition. We have ours in human nutrition and food science with an emphasis on dietetics. And we obtained our degrees and then you have to apply for an internship program. It's kind of a residency as a doctor would do. And so we completed 2000 supervised practice hours in various settings of nutrition. And then you have to take an extremely rigorous exam. Um, And even to get into one of those internships, when we graduated in 2012, um, only one in 50 people ever would get into one of those internship programs. So they're highly competitive. Um, And then to pass the exam is another hurdle. And then just like a, a doctor or any type of other health professional, we have to maintain our licensure or certification by obtaining continuing education units or continuing med- medical education. And then with this all, what that kind of distills down to is essentially having a really good foundation and understanding of physiology, anatomy, advanced nutrient metabolism. And so that's all the things we learn. Drug, drug interaction, drug nutrient right. interaction where, yeah, like a nutritionist, they'll tell you, take these 10 supplements and then might interact with something else you're taking. <laughs> right, right. So the education Extremely extensive as a diet, as a registered dietitian. It's not like you said, like a, because I 
ashamed to say, I was like, okay, so a nutritionist, depending on, because I'm in Florida. So, because we use, they use the word nutritionist. Okay. We're going to bring the nutritionist to see the patient, to see what they, they can recommend. So mm-hmm. I question if it was like a registered dietitian or if it was like dietitian nutritionist, like Dahlia said. Mm-hmm. If it's in a hospital, it's likely a dietitian. Um, right. But like we said, anywhere else, it's, it's your best bet. <laughs> it's your best guess. Pretty much for anybody who's listening, if you want to know about nutrition, you really need to talk to a registered dietitian because they've gone through the training, they've gone through schooling, and they've gone, gone through rigorous testing. I know there now are some great programs that have like a master's in functional nutrition. And so those are certified nutritionists, but they're degreed. They have a master's degree in functional nutrition. So always ask the person you're taking advice from, what is your medical background? What is your educational and scholarly background? How did you get to this point? So you understand that you're not just taking advice from someone who read a blog and is now trying to pass that on to you. But even with but even with that being said, you know you can go to a registered um, dietitian. But how is what they're learning congruent with a whole food plant based um, lifestyle or diet? I was gonna comment on that. You know, it's just not like all a, dietitians are created equal, right? And it's just like anything, right? Like a, a, a mechanic or even your Although dentist. I'm sure you see nurses. You know, or nurses, right? Practicing. It's like you. You gotta you gotta shop around a little bit, right? Not we're not all created equal, and so it is kind of filling it out and seeing what does this dietitian know? Because even I mean, some of the I don't want to I don't want to bash on anyone, but you know, some of the older programs and in, in the becoming a registered dietitian, you're missing out on a lot of new, really really important education and research that has been coming out. And um, even yeah. us, when we were in school, we transitioned to a plant-based diet while we were still obtaining our degrees, people, our peers thought we were extreme. Mm. We were, um, we were excessive that, you know, we were going to become (laughs) malnourished. People who were studying to become dietitians were saying this. So even amongst our peers, there are few and far in between who are either plant-based or just understand that a plant-based diet can sustain health. Although our accrediting body, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they acknowledge that a properly planned plant-based diet, vegan or vegetarian diet is optimal, can be optimal for health. So, you know, the overarching body who oversees dietitians recognizes that, yes, if they're properly planned, vegan diets are really great. And to add to that for any stage of life, so that's including pregnancy, babies, you know, all phases of life, a properly planned vegan diet is great. So that, so I'm just tying to this, what you just said. So how then does, how can one frame, one sentence, they say that, what you just said, and then Mm -hmm. also still advocate for eating meat and all the other items that within the vegan community, the China study and all the different research that's been done, it's been proven that that's actually causing the illnesses that a whole food plant-based diet is combating. So how, how do, how do, how does that balance exist? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it, a lot of it boils down to politics and yeah. funding. Unfortunately, you see that in any industry you're in. Uh, we right. personally stopped going to the dietitian conferences because when we used to go, they were funded by McDonald's, the beef industry. So you'd go to talks 
that were funded by McDonald's saying, you know, saturated fat is fine or sponsored by the beef council saying eating more red meat is good for your health. And so they justified it by saying, oh, well, someone has to help offset the cost for you dietitians to come to these conferences. And we were like, that's not going right. to fly with us. That that's a conflict of interest. Right. So so I would I would kind of boil that down to two main issues. And like Dahlia said, it is it is politics, and then it's also research, right? So and they really they really cross over quite a bit. So you know, someone who sees the China study would go, oh, that's just epidemiology. It's very weak. You know, that's not it's not like a randomized clinical control trial. So there's all these like hierarchy hierarchy in research. But what we, we, what we try to help patients and other health professionals understand is it's not looking at individual studies. It's looking at all the different studies as a whole and putting it together and looking at the big picture. Mm. That's what a lot of health professionals have trouble doing because we're, especially in the Western culture, we're taught to be very reductionist, very narrow. And very just compartmentalized. Look at, yeah. Oh, oh, you have IBS? We're just going to look at your gut. Okay. Oh, you know, forget about the thyroid and how the thyroid helps with gut motility and forget about how the liver and blood sugar, regulation, and, blood sugar cholesterol. And, and forget about the fact that diabetes, again, diabetic neuropathy is a huge, huge, if not one of the biggest factors in IBS or IBD and having gut issues. So if you're diabetic, like pretty much most of the population <laughs> is, you're more likely to have gut issues. No, no, no. We're just going to give you medication for your gut. You know, so are these specific recommendations just for the gut without really holistically understanding mm -hmm. top to bottom how nutrition could affect a person? And so we're seeing this ripple effect in the research and politics and even how we help patients of this just reductionist mentality. And that's even that's as of late, we're seeing the carnivore diet, right? That's becoming really popular and it's scary. I am part of all these functional medicine groups and even other dietitian groups. And people are saying, oh, my patients are seeing great results for their gut on a carnivore diet. And it was interesting. Another functional medicine practitioner who's not plant-based posted, you know, I know people say it's good for gut health, but I'm seeing alarming things. She posted her patient's labs without any patient information, but this woman's cholesterol was almost 700. Um, she was at risk for having a heart attack. A walking heart attack. Yeah. She was pre-diabetic since going carnivore. Um, her blood pressure was skyrocketing, but her gut health was better. So <laughs> the patient said, no, I feel good. And here, but but here's the misconception: is we say gut health, but that's really maybe her symptoms given a couple of months. So is that really gut health, or is that just some minor short-term short symptoms? So when you're talking about gut health, you're talking about long-term sustainable gut health, not just it. not just a month or two, right? So yeah, it, it's really really alarming. This, this kind of mentality we have. And so we've seen a plant-based diet just reduces risk all around. I'm just taking it all in just because, again, I've had experiences throughout my entire hospital nursing career, even as a traveler in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. and the day, you know, the registered dietitians, they will be recommending. My father has diabetes. He was diagnosed and I had been telling him for years, you're going to be a diabetic. And I could just tell from the swelling of his legs. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, I'm taking you to the doctor. His A1C was almost seven. Mm -hmm. Long story short, they recommended a dietitian. So when I sat down and listened to what she was saying, she put a plate in front of us. And then she's like, well, you have your carbs, you have your protein, and then you have your veggies, you have this. And then pretty much she was recommending, well, you need to eat better. So what does that mean? You need to eat a little bit less red meat, but you can eat fish. You can eat eggs for your protein so you won't go deficient. And I was like, 
okay, well, what about sticking to maybe of a more plant-based diet because my father refuses to? And she's like, well, we have to be concerned because of his diabetes. We don't want to give him too much fruit because that will increase his carb and increase his sugar. Mm-hmm. Let's talk uh, about that. And uh, that's what we're taught. You, I, yeah, that's all to the back of your heads when I said that. That's what we're taught. We're given little pamphlets in school on carb counting and that patients need to control their bean consumption, their whole grain consumption, their fruit consumption. Mm. As I understand why a patient comes to us and the top thing they're facing is food fear because they've been told even by well-meaning health practitioners, these foods are bad for you. This, these beans are going to make your blood sugar skyrocket. So what does that translate to a patient? Beans are bad for you, Right. And so they're not given that entire picture of what it is that, no, it's, it's not the beans, it's not the starch, it's not the carbs. And you guys, you know, I'm sure so many of you follow um, Mastering Diabetes and, you know, my uh, Robbie and Cyrus, and we know that it's not the carbs, it's insulin resistant that we formed from high visceral fat, high body fat, high fat intake is going to offset blood sugar, has nothing to do with the carbs. It's about your sensitivity to them, your insulin sensitivity. You shouldn't need over time to require more and more insulin. You should become more sensitive to your insulin. And how do you do that? By reducing your fat intake, reducing your overall body fat, Mm -hmm. um, and not scaring patients into being afraid of fruit that is curative, that is an entire wealth of antioxidant, to be afraid of beans that have these great resistant starches that help our gut produce short-chain fatty acids that are so curative and healing. We're really confused, I think, as a general population, but even as health professionals, we're confused because that's what we're being fed. We're being fed by these recommendations and guidelines that, yeah, protein's good. Protein balances your blood sugar. We're looking again at these short-term gains that maybe your blood sugar won't go up after this one meal. But over time, is your A1C steadily rising as your cholesterol is steadily rising, as your waistline is steadily expanding? Mm -hmm. We're not looking at that. And I I came up with a very simple analogy for this when it comes to diabetes really quick. I call it the DMV effect, right? So Mm -hmm. it's this DMV analogy where um, anytime you go to the DMV, I know, especially here in California, the line is out the door, Mm -hmm. right? So that can represent diabetes. The people represent your blood sugar. It's skyrocketing. Your blood sugar is really high. Uh, and when you but when you look inside the DMV as well, there's only one person working and they're in an argument with someone. So the line's not even moving. Right. Yeah. And so that represents diabetes. Now, what the carnivore or paleo or low carb diet does is they remove a lot of the people from the line. So they do help to remove blood sugar as you remove refined carbohydrates and sugar and you go really low carb. So from the outside, and it's just like these low-carb people with a six-pack, they look really good. The DMV, you go, wow, this DMV has no line. It looks great. But when you open the door, you still see the argument going on. So whether you have 1,000 people in line or 10 people in line, if the line is not moving, it's still not functioning, right? So the argument represents this kind of intracellular fat that's blocking insulin, Insulin receptors. Insulin receptors, right? And the line represents blood sugar. What you want to do is tackle both ends. And that's going to be with a whole food plant-based diet. Because the plants and the phytonutrients and the fiber helps to clean out that cell of the intracellular fat. 
At the same time, it helps to lower your blood sugar so you truly get a functional DMV with that, right? So let's talk um, sugar for a little bit. We have, we mentioned fruit sugar. Right. Natural form. Then mm -hmm. we have processed sugar that can come in cookies, candies. Let's talk about that a little bit. Right. And so this is where, yeah, not all food is created equal. One mm -hmm. of the things we really missed, and it's not the fault of any past dietitian or health professional, it's really because of the, the new research we have is that what we say is every person is a finger. We're all humans, but everyone has a different fingerprint, right? So it does play into your hormones, your age, your, your gender, your microbiome as well. And that's going to determine how you process food. So I like to go with dates as, a, as an example. So dates are 80% sugar. They're 60% uh, sweeter than cake frosting, yet in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, there's a study of patients, type 2 diabetic patients, who are given dates and it actually helped with their diabetes, right? So, so how is that? And, and I'm finding that with my patients as well. The more dates I tell them to eat and whole fruit I tell them to eat, they, they start to do better. So how can that be? Well, when you look at a date, it just so happens to be one of the most minerally dense fruits you can eat. It just so happens to have all these great fiber, whether it's insoluble and soluble. So this idea of a whole complete package is then harder to bring down. It gives almost like a time-released effect to your blood sugar, as opposed to if I took that date and extracted just the date sugar. Mm. And then date sugar, it would give you a big spike because you're leaving out all that protein, all the minerals, all the vitamins, all the phytonutrients, and your body has less to break down. So going back to James' analogy, the date would, in essence, contribute just a few people to the line at the same time at the DMV, and the DMV is able to efficiently process them, and then a couple more people join the line, and they're processed, a couple more people. But if it's date sugar, you've removed that fiber, that limiting factor, then again, all those people just hop in line all at the same time. And then the right. DMV scrambling to say, oh, shoot, we need to process them as, as quickly as possible. We need to get them through as fast as we possibly can. And things are done less efficiently at that point. For the ones who don't know, you mentioned soluble and non-soluble. Can you explain mm -hmm. a little bit about that? I love giving this analogy. I always say, think of your gut as a dirty floor, right? If we want to clean the floor really well, we want to first sweep. So oftentimes when we say fiber, that's the type of fiber people think like, oh, I'm going to bulk my stool. I'm going to push that stool out. And so that's insoluble fiber. It's more like a broom, right? You wouldn't wet a broom. It's dry. It's rough. It's going to sweep out a lot of excess dirt. But then you look at your floor and there are still spots. So you want to mop, right? You need to wet the mop. You need soluble fiber that soaks up water, drinks up water. And so that soluble fiber acts as a mop. It kind of mops things up, gets all the leftover spots. So both things are cleaning, but they have different types of functions. One absorbs water, one does not absorb water. Both are extremely important in gut health, regular bowel movements, cholesterol reduction, because fiber binds cholesterol in the gut. So you can excrete it through your bowels rather than reabsorb it. And so both types of fiber are extremely essential. And so people often ask us, well, I don't like fruits and vegetables. What if I just use a fiber supplement? It varies which one you're using, but usually it's only soluble fiber. 
Or, you know, could be like a psyllium husk, which has both soluble and insoluble broom and mop type fiber. Mm-hmm. But you're not, you're missing the antioxidants. You're missing the vitamins. You're missing the nutrients. You're never going to find a supplement that can replace whole foods. That's why they're called supplements. They're not called replacements. Um, and so these fiber powders are the same thing. You need whole food fiber because most plants, fruits, vegetables, um, beans, legumes, nuts, seeds, they have both types of fiber already built in. So eating that apple, you are getting the insoluble fiber in the skin, and then you're getting the soluble fiber on the inside. Right. Um, pears, you know, do the same. So many different types of vegetables have the same. Chia eat seed. the skin, you also eat the inside. So we always tell people, eat the skins because they're, that's important fiber as well. Yeah. And, and, and a really cool point that Dahlia made was, was how it binds to cholesterol. And so one really cool, another way to say that is it binds to excess hormones. And so this is where you get to the gut hormone axis where a lot of people don't realize that your gut microbiome helps to regulate your hormones because it's a recycling center, but it's also a waste dump. Mm -hmm. So if you're having excess estrogen, so women with PCOS or women with, you know, maybe they're going through menopause or they're having all these hormonal changes, a healthy gut microbiome is going to help you transition through these changes a lot better and keep you healthy because of this binding effect of fiber, because of all the different microbes you have there. It's a recycling center. It's a waste a manufacturing center. And it, it's pretty amazing. So it is a hormone regulation center as well. So it's very cool. With the fiber, we all know that we're not, and Dali, this is from the beginning. I'm just repeating what you said. We are very getting, we're as Americans, let's forget about Europe, Australia, everybody else. But as Americans, we're getting very little fiber in our diet. And even the recommendation, you said it's not enough. Yeah, absolutely. So, even the recommendations are very, very low. What are the recommendations at the moment for fiber that we're supposed to be getting that are so low? What was, what was the recommendation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so typically the recommendation is about 25 to 30 grams um, on average. The typical, for an adult. For an adult. Mm-hmm. And the typical American adult is getting around 15. Mm-hmm. So so we're already we're already below the what we would suggest is already a low recommendation. So even the recommendation of 25 to 30 grams a day is already low. Um, because and we said 97% of Americans aren't even hitting that. So I broke it down. I think that's equivalent to one apple. Mm-hmm. Um, it was equivalent to, I think half a cup of brown rice and one serving of veggies, a half a cup about the size of my fist. That's nothing. It's nothing. And so we always ask our patients they come to see us and our rec our first and foremost recommendation is always eat more veggies. And they're like, they just sit there and look at me and I'm like, I know you came here. You thought I was going to give you some magic pill, but really let's look at what you are eating. And it's usually a bunch of protein, a bunch of grains. We're really good at eating protein. We're really good at eating greens, but we're not thinking greens over grains, right? We're not taking those opportunities to opt for cauliflower or broccoli rice over white rice or, you know, even brown rice. Sometimes not that there's anything wrong with brown rice, brown rice is great, great for health. But when it's constantly rice with every meal and you're not including veggies, take an opportunity to upgrade that and really get to your recommended fiber. Um, Dr. Angie, we were speaking with Dr. Angie and we were saying, how many grams of fiber do you get? And 
you know, the th- between the three of us, we get on average 90 to 100 grams of fiber. So four times the amount that an average American is getting. For my patients, I want to see them getting no fewer than 50 grams, but really 75 grams is kind of the least I want to see them getting. But we right. start slow, increase over time. We don't want them to feel extremely bloated if they go from 10 grams a day to 100 grams a day. Um, but we really see the importance, like we may have been mentioning, of fiber and how important that is for hormones and cholesterol. Right. We see the importance the antioxidants we see important in blood sugar and weight and just overall risk and how fiber is so important and this is and i just want to comment too we, t- we say the microbiome we say the gut microbiome but it's it's we're, we're really just kind of simplifying it because i want people to understand too there's the microbiome there's the mycobiome which is the fungal biome then there's the virulome and then there's the exposome. So there, there's, there's the metabolome. So there's multiple universes happening wow. in your body. And so when, when we just say the microbiome, it is all of these universes. It's, it's under that umbrella. I think, I think I got, I explained them also. So yeah, so that's kind of explaining the complexity and all the different universes we're seeing within this umbrella term of the gut microbiome. So I just wanted to give some of that context. And we actually have 100 trillion types of organisms residing within our body. So we are actually more virus, bacteria, protozoa, archaea than we are human cell and human DNAs. So that is why there are so many of those terms of, you know, I went with my gut or I had a gut feeling or, you know, my, my gut was telling me. Mm-hmm. And so it's because it's true. Those gut microbes really do communicate with us. I had mentioned in the beginning, there are more signals going from gut to brain than brain to gut. And so when people say you are what you eat, it's you are what your microbes eat. You are what your microbes express. You are what you are putting into your body. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen patients and case studies have even shown this in peer reviewed journals um, patients improving their nutrition, improve their mental health. Again, we said 70 to 90% of the serotonin is produced in the gut. So you can alleviate things like depression, anxiety, oftentimes, not in every case, but in many cases, you can improve it with improving nutrition. Um, you know, if there's past trauma, you want to work through that, but, um, with nutrition that can improve that you can improve so many different things by improving again the substrate that is going through and passing through every single part of your gut from um, top to bottom. I also got to include this this really cool fact. A lot of my patients really love this when we're at conferences or when we give talks. We, we say this, but so a, a lot of us are hearing more about epigenetics as well. So that's basically the the effect of food and the environment on your genome, right? So your genetics and a lot of people are saying, oh, well, heart disease is genetic. You know, I have my gut issues are genetic, cancer is genetic. One of the things I like to point out is you're actually only 1% human DNA. So when you're talking about your genetics, you're actually talking about microorganism DNA. You're more of these microorganism DNA, you have more of these microorganism DNA than actual human DNA. So could it be that environmental toxins and what you eat and what you're exposed to is actually altering your microbiome DNA, which then alters your DNA? I think- And what you express. And what you express. So I think that's where we're headed in terms of epigenetics. I, I think, you know, it's amazing when people realize that fact and go, wow, I'm not, I'm only 1% human DNA. <laughs> so 
really not maybe hereditary. Yeah. You know, it is it is what I do in my life that can change. Um, so it's really cool. And we know though that yeah, some things have been passed down multi generational. So what your grandmother ate actually can affect the genes that you have available in your body. But what you eat can keep those maybe unhealthy genes turned off or turn them on. And so we know that there's this transgenerational effect because, you know, we all know we're born with all the eggs we're ever going to have. So our grandmother contained our mother's eggs when she was born, which contained our eggs. So we were actually at one point part of our grandmother's. It's, it's um, inception. It's like, whoa, it yeah. blows your mind of like your, your, so your grandmother was actually responsible for making 50% of you DNA wise. So it's really, really interesting. And so her habits, yeah, they can play a role in the things that you might express and the things that you might live with, but your everyday habits those are going to matter so much more that can maybe keep that cancer gene that's in your family turned off that can keep that high cholesterol gene turned off. So you don't express that high cancer. Mm -hmm. You don't exhibit that symptom. You're not turning that gene on and you're really transcending that familial risk that you might have. And I, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to add one more thing. Um, and something else we're really excited about too is, is understanding of that. And a lot of people don't realize this, but we actually exchange DNA with food. So when you're talking about eating and we recommend certified organic healthy food, it is because you actually, your gut microbiome exchanges DNA with food. So you literally become what you eat. That old saying is, is literally true because you're exchanging food DNA. As you know, all food has DNA. Your microbiome has DNA and they're exchanging, they're communicating. And that is one way they help to get a sense of the environment. When you're talking about genetically modified food, and that's how they're getting a sense of the environment, our microbiome is going, whoa, this environment is jacked. It's full of pesticides and GMO food and what the heck is going on, it starts to go in panic mode. And we're seeing this rise in chronic disease. But so, so James's environmental this. nutritionist is showing, but we <laughs> oftentimes have patients who are like, why are you asking me about that? Like where I grew up, did I grow up by a factory? Did I grow up by a contaminated river or field? That does matter also in how, in what you're expressing. And that will ultimately affect your gut health and your health and other capacity. Yep. So we ask patients, my first question to my patients is tell me your health story. Start from day one. Mm -hmm. Were you a vaginal birth or were you C-section birth? That matters to your gut microbiome. If you were exposed to the vaginal microbiome with that vaginal bacteria, you have a more robust gut, gut microbiome just from day one. If you were breastfed versus formula fed, you have a more robust gut microbiome from day one. We ask our patients, how was your diet as a child? Mm -hmm. Because that can be the reason why you have these symptoms today at 57 years old or however old they are. And so we know that that is why we see kids. Ha setting kids up for success and having a healthy diet from the very beginning is extremely important because nine out of 10 of our IBS, IBD patients, or even those with SIBO, which mm -hmm. we want to talk more about, um, they said... I can always remember having some type of gut issues. I remember as a child, uh, my mom told me I was a colicky baby. I had milk protein intolerance. I had lactose intolerance. A lot of them say, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I missed a lot of school because my stomach was always hurting. Or I remember that I was always having stomach issues from a very young age. I asked them, do you remember a time in your life where you took several courses of antibiotics? And they're like, 
oh yeah, I see light bulbs go on. They're like, <laughs> yeah, I always had strep throat. I always had these upper respiratory infections. I got chronic ear infections. And, you know, personally, I knew for me, my parents only took me to the doctor to get antibiotics or else why would you even go to the doctor, right? Um, when I was growing up, that was the sole purpose of visiting the doctor to get antibiotics. For me as well. And we know that that can disseminate, you know, 70, 90% of your commensal, your healthy bacteria in your gut, every single course of antibiotics. So, so many of our patients say, oh yeah, I would take like four five, six courses of antibiotics every single year. My diet was awful. I was formula fed. I was C-section delivery. And so we have a lot to work back from with them. With everything you just said, my biggest takeaway was that what we do today could potentially be the biggest gift that we give to our children and future generations, not even just our children, but future generations. So how much does that play a role in what um, you both do in your, in your education in terms of um, health and children? Oh my gosh, it's, it's everything. So that's why, I mean, it, it's kind of like plant a seed today to see the tree grow tomorrow for the future, right? So that's what we need to think of as a human race. We need to start planting these seeds, not for ourselves, not to be selfish, not for that ego, but for future generations. And part of that is a whole food plant-based diet. This then ties in, I'll put my environmental nutrition hat on. And, and this is something we wanted to do in our, in our new company called Your Gut Connection, which if you do purchase our program through Your Gut Connection, 5% of the profits go to regenerative farming. So we have a, we've partnered with an amazing farmer, Farmer Rishi, who, who uh, owns Sarvadeya Institute. And it is a nonprofit organization where they teach urban communities how to farm regeneratively. In their own backyard. In their own backyard. So he started by transforming his, in college, his parents' backyard. It was, you know, a regular, however many square foot house. He transformed the backyard from a basketball court into a farm that produces tens of thousands of pounds of food every single year. And wow. so he teaches people how to do that regardless of your space, regardless of your limitations with that. You can be a farmer too. You can grow this highly nutritious food for yourself, for your community, for your kids. And we teach people, get your kids involved in things like that. If you guys can even grow a tomato plant, which is so low maintenance, your kids are then going to go so excitedly pick those tomatoes and eat them. If you can take them to the farmer's market and show them, this was just picked this morning by that guy right there, right? The mm -hmm. farmer who picked it here. Um, that's so cool. They get so excited. They're trying samples. We tell people, take your kids to the grocery store. We're parents. I know it takes double the time. You know, she has to go to the bathroom seven times while we're at the store. She's hungry. She wants eight snacks while we're there. It's fine. I, I need to do it for her. I'm teaching her such invaluable right. lessons when I do that. Having her cook with us. She takes such pride in that. She wants to be involved in the kitchen. And then she takes ownership of that meal. I made this. Mm -hmm. I put in this seasoning. I threw in that nutritional yeast. I chopped those mushrooms with my little knife. I'm proud of this. I want to try it rather than, oh, that's just something, another thing mom made. I don't want to eat it. Give me my mac and cheese. I'm and, not interested. And so we're really passionate about connecting these dots of gut health and soil health because they mirror one another. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're checking off so many boxes. You're saying, wow, we're producing less CO2. Everyone's worried about the Amazon. We can grow the Amazon in our backyards and sequester that carbon. We can teach kids about healthy food. We can reduce our waste because the plant foods you eat, you just throw them right back in the garden, the food scraps. And so what, what we're doing is creating a cyclical 
environment instead of this linear, right? So it's a closed loop. We're we're using everything. We're in harmony with everything as opposed to this linear, which says you buy something and it becomes trash and waste. No, no, no. Nothing is waste. Everything can be reused and recycled. Everything is connected. That's, that's essentially what we're doing for the future. Yeah. (laughs) That means that your daughter eats like you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Layla, our daughter, she's four and a half now. Um, I've been plant-based for eight years. So even while I was pregnant with her, she's been vegan since conception. Um, she's never eaten animal products in her life. She thrives. We take her for her regular checkup. She's doing great. We've even done like micronutrient testing on her because her mm-hmm. doctor really wanted to know like, okay, is she doing okay? She's doing great. Um, and so like we said, even the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics recognizes that a properly planned plant-based diet is healthy for kids. And so people come up to us literally in restaurants and they're like, how is she eating a portobello mushroom? Like, or what is she? She's eating a salad. And I'm like, yeah, we don't do kids meals. We don't do brown food for her. She gets a regular meal because we don't believe in this concept of kid food and adult food and leaving it up to the kid. Once they start having health issues, then they can figure out how to eat healthy. No, we need to teach them those important skills from the very beginning. Um, and so we show her, we teach her and that's why, you know, some people choose not to put their kids on social media. We choose to put Layla on our social media because we get messages every day saying, I love when my kids watch Layla's video and then they want to eat vegetables like Layla or my kids want to cook because they see Layla cooking with you guys. And so we put her out there because we want her to be an example to her generation and to generations coming forward. And so she's a little activist too. She just started preschool and her preschool is a co-op. So parents wrote to bringing snacks. But the guidelines are we have to bring a fruit, a vegetable, and a protein. And Layla always has her alternate protein, hummus or roasted chickpeas, nuts and seeds, whatever. Um, and so one day, I guess the snack was fruit, vegetable, and egg. And a little boy asked Layla, why, why aren't you eating egg? And she told him, I'm vegan. <laughs> he was like, vegan. And she told him, I don't eat animal products. And this little boy was like, I'm going to ask my mom if I can be vegan. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> is that you pretty much lifted. You were a woman who was pregnant. As yep. a vegan. You didn't have any nutritional issues. You didn't have any problems. And then yep. your daughter was born, you know, that's a blessing in itself also without complication. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you have lived what many people, and I've heard this before, it's not a possibility. It doesn't exist. And I'm even one who, you know, in my background, my history, I, at 17 years old, I was an obese teenager on a standard American diet. And one single day I was diagnosed with autoimmune thyroid disease. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, polycystic syndrome, pre-diabetes. I had high cholesterol at the time. Um, I was 50 pounds heavier than I am today. So I was even told you need to be on medication to regulate your cycle. You, if you ever want to get pregnant, you'll likely need a bunch of other hormones and things that are going to keep your cycle on track and ensure that you carry a pregnancy to term. And so none of that was the case. Transitioning to a plant-based diet helped me evade all of that and carry my daughter to term, have a really healthy pregnancy, bear this beautiful, wonderful, healthy child, and she's thriving. I might add she breastfed for two and a half years on top of that. Yeah. So it's great. <laughs> So you're saying for anybody listening to us who have been considering, maybe they're not pregnant yet or they're making a transition, that they shouldn't be afraid because your child is not going to be deficient of what? Calcium. 
the biggest growth spur is during birth until when they're when they're babies. When they start growing, they start growing their bones, they start growing their tissues. They won't be calcium deficient. They won't be any type of mineral deficient. Yeah, absolutely. And we advise pregnant women, absolutely get a varied diet and still take your prenatal vitamins. You want to have those as an insurance policy. You want to ensure that on top of the wonderful greens and the nuts and the seeds and the other calcium rich plant foods you're eating, you're getting that insurance policy with your prenatal vitamin or with kids, you know, Layla takes a multivitamin because some days she's just not as hungry. So we just give it to her as an insurance policy. Right. And so she takes in her multivitamin, there's B12 in there. Um, we do as a family. I, I would say the, the big, the big supplements for almost any age is like a D3 an omega three and a B12. Mm -hmm. And so those are the big three um, that you want to take as insurance policies, I would say forever. And this is whether you're a vegan or a meat eater or whatever you consider yourself. And this is, this is a whole nother podcast we could do on the environment, but this is because of the damage we've done to our soil. This is because we're seeing lower nutrient profiles in food because we've damaged the environment so much. So all of us should be doing this insurance policy because of our soil, but then at the same time working to enhance our soil so that there is a day where we can go, we don't really need these supplements anymore. Our soil is so nutrient rich. Many more people are spending time in the soil and getting inoculated with those B12 producing microbes on a regular basis because B12 comes from soil microbes, not from meat. Not from animal products. Like right. Right. So, so we will get there one day, but it's just kind of waking everyone up, planting these seeds, whether it's Layla talking to a little boy or us doing a podcast, whatever it is, or, or talking to our patients. But it is planting these seeds to realize we have to not only heal ourselves with food, but at the same time, we can heal our soil with mm -hmm. food. And uh, and yeah, that's the winning combination. And that's something we hear often like, oh, yeah, I went vegan and I felt so deficient. Well, were you taking B12 and were you taking vitamin D? No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you again, you want to ensure it's properly planned. You want to ensure that everything that needs to be there is there. Um, so yeah, we want to make sure that people aren't backing themselves into a corner and assuming that a plant-based diet is going to lead them to deficiencies or like we said, lead them to gut issues because, you know, I had, we had talked to the side before and we said a lot of these influencers and other nutritionists and things will say, I got SIBO because I went on a vegan diet or I can't eat any fiber or any plants because it makes me really bloated and that's bad for me or that's going to give me SIBO. So that's exactly the reason why we developed your gut connection, which is our gut healing protocol. And with that being said, I think this is a perfect time for you to talk a little bit more about the program that you've developed, you know, the SIBO program. Um, Let's tell us a little bit more about how that you know, came about and exactly what is the SIBO program. Yeah. So we've known Dr. Angie for about two years now. And so we met and immediately we clicked. We actually met through a patient. And so a physical therapist who's plant-based found James and I on this um, website called Plant-Based Docs. And so it's a database of plant-based health professionals. And she was specializing in Parkinson's. She referred a Parkinson's patient who started working with James. And this patient also happened to go see Dr. Angie. And she was 
Dr. Angie started talking about nutrition with the patient. And she was like, oh, no, don't worry. I have a dietitian. And Dr. Angie, historically knowing what dietitians are taught, was like, oh, God, you have a dietitian. What are they telling you? And she was like, no, no, don't worry. He's plant-based. And Dr. Andrew was like, what did you just say? So she asked the patient for our phone number in the visit and called James while she was sitting there with the patient. She's like, hey, I'm sitting here with your patient. Um, this is Dr. Andrew Sadegi. And at that time, I don't know how we didn't, we weren't familiar with Dr. Angie. And so she called us, we set up a meeting and we were driving to the meeting and I happened to look her up on Instagram and she had like 50,000 followers at the time. I was like, oh, geez, this lady is legit. <laughs> And so is history. So from there, we put our three brains together. We put together what we see. Um, that patient in particular was dealing with SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And, and we were starting to recognize that more and more and more people were being diagnosed with SIBO. And what we didn't know for a long time was that SIBO is actually an underlying cause for 40 to 60% of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. So IBS, I tell my patients, IBS, I look at it kind of like fibromyalgia. When a doctor diagnoses you with fibromyalgia, it's kind of like, you're in pain. I don't know why you have fibromyalgia. It's mm -hmm. like, what's going on? I don't know why you have fibromyalgia. IBS is kind of the same. Your stomach hurts. You're having these nonspecific symptoms. I don't know why you have irritable bowel syndrome. It's your, your stomach's just irritated. Um, but we now know SIBO contributes to 40, 40 to 60% of IBS. And it's a relatively newer diagnosis. Now more and more practitioners are becoming familiarized with it. However, for a while it went grossly undiagnosed and underdiagnosed just because most people didn't know what it was. So we, it was at that time when we were saying, you know what, we're seeing more SIBO and we're seeing that these patients who have SIBO are coming to us and saying, oh no, no, I can't be plant-based. Fiber is bad for me. You know, I went to my doctor and they told me eat little to no fiber because fiber is going to give me SIBO. Mm. And we know it's quite the contrary. There are so many underlying causes and etiologies for SIBO. We're seeing that a lot of people with SIBO have hypothyroidism, maybe subclinical hypothyroidism that hasn't been detected because we're not testing different thyroid markers. And so to explain a little bit more about what SIBO is before I get into why someone might have SIBO, SIBO is, like I said, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So we mentioned in the beginning, your gut is one big long tube and it's compartmentalized by these different doors called sphincters. And it's a unidirectional flow, kind of like a river. You tend not to see a river flowing this way and that way, right? It only mm. goes downstream one way. Our gut is supposed to function in the same manner. Put food in your mouth. It goes down your esophagus. Your stomach pumps hydrochloric acid to break it down. It's digested and absorbed then in the small intestine. And then another door opens and it allows things to pass into the large intestine where it's fermented, packaged, moved out, right? Through the rectum. And so... Mm. When things start to backflow and the doors start opening the wrong way, that is when you start to exhibit symptoms. And so with SIBO, it is that bacteria from the large intestine, which is a very different bacteria than the bacteria in the small intestine. The bacteria mm -hmm. in the small intestine, that's an absorbing type of bacteria. Um, and so the fermenting bacteria, and there's a more abundant amount of bacteria in the colon than the small intestine, that creeps up. It's mm -hmm. opportunity. Not pathogenic bacteria. I want to make that really clear because people think, oh, it's bad bacteria in my stomach. No, it's not. It's perfectly normal bacteria. It just was misplaced. So it 
crept up from the small intestine to the large intestine, and it's a fermenting bacteria. So now it starts to see all this beautiful unabsorbed food. And it's like, ooh, I'm going to ferment and start mm. to eat it. And what's the byproduct of fermentation? Gas. Gas. So there are different types of wow. gas that this bacteria can produce. It can produce hydrogen gas. It can produce methane gas. It can produce hydrogen sulfide gas, which is harder to diagnose, um, but it's only 1% to 2% of people with SIBO with it. And so people, the telltale sign of SIBO, my patients come to me and they say, I wake up with a flat stomach. By the end of the day, I look nine months pregnant, six to nine months pregnant. They show me pictures. They literally change clothes sizes by the end of the day. Their pants don't fit. Um, they have to wear loose fitting clothing because as they eat or drink throughout the day, they get more and more and more bloated and they literally look pregnant. And so we know the fiber is just more fermentable, which is why they don't have symptoms when they eat animal products. There's no fiber in there. You're not fermenting it as much. So patients will say, oh, I can't, fiber gives me SIBO. No, it's your messed up gut that gave you SIBO. Fiber just exacerbates your symptoms until you alleviate the SIBO, get to the root cause, treat that, and maybe rebalance and repopulate your gut and your bacteria in your gut. And so we know there are many causes for SIBO. Um, James mentioned earlier, neuropathy or nerve damage, death of nerves can cause, we oftentimes associate neuropathy with tingling in the hands and feet, right? And so we associate that with diabetes. But one of the most concentrated nerve bundles we have in our body is in our gut. So if someone's experiencing neuropathy in their peripheral, um, their arms and legs and the peripheries, they're absolutely going to be experiencing neuropathy in the gut. So uncontrolled diabetes, subclinical hypothyroidism, like we said, the thyroid controls your metabolism, the rate at which your gut moves. If that's moving too slowly, that opportunistic bacteria gets hungry. It creeps up, starts to eat food in your uh, small intestine. You start to get very bloated. We see things like um, chronic drug use, narcotic drug use can be a risk factor for SIBO. Any prolonged use of painkillers, um, neurological damage. We see damage in what's called the vagus nerve, which vagus means traveling. So it travels from the base of your um, head down to the lowest parts of your gut. So if you've had head trauma or neurological damage, these neurological diseases like Parkinson's, they are at risk for SIBO because there's just malfunctioning, malfiring of the nerves in the gut. So, so many reasons one can have SIBO. The reason for SIBO is not a vegan diet or not because of fiber. Why can't you digest the fiber? That's so important to understand and know. What, how can we get you digesting fiber again? Because we've talked this entire hour about how fiber is so important. And so the number one thing we do is help patients identify why they got SIBO. Because studies show you can treat it with various antibiotics or even herbal nutraceuticals. But if you don't get to the root, studies estimate that 40 to 60% of patients relapse and re-exhibit symptoms of SIBO if they don't figure out why they had SIBO in the first place. Um, and so your gut connection, our program is different because we get to the root cause, we treat it. So we might use in certain cases, the antibiotics, the pharmaceuticals, but more often than not, we use the herbal antibiotics because a study from Johns Hopkins did show that they were more effective than the antibiotic. And so we use those. We also have a six step program to retrain the gut and reintroduce the gut to more fibrous foods. So we start low and slow, and then we add more and more fibers. So 
yeah fascinating so so it kind of brings it back to the analogy that you mentioned earlier with the dmv it's like mm -hmm. we we're looking at okay the lines moving are you know it seems long but we're not addressing the root issue of why it's taking long for us to or rather for the food to pass through or for it to um it's very i i, I do want to say like that's probably the clearest description that i've heard in terms of of how your food is digested and whatnot so i might just isolate that clip and do something with that so that was that was really good i appreciate that i love it and i'm sorry james had to step out to go see his patients but that's that's how we are. And that's why we created an online platform. We were implementing this in office, but you can only affect so much change day to day, one on one. We wanted to deliver this to a larger audience and really say we want to help hundreds, thousands, ten thousands of people. And we have people in the program who are not plant based, but they are following the plant based protocol and they are seeing incredible results and they are saying, hey, there's something to this. I feel really great. I have more energy. I'm not bloated anymore. Um, my blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down. There's something to this program. It's different. These people have also tried things like the carnivore diet. They've been paleo. They've been keto at the advice of their practitioners. And they're seeing that your gut connection has really not only helped them understand the root cause and repair their relationship with food, um, but it has shown them a plant-based diet because we mentioned before food fear is huge and food fear is huge with a patient population with gut issues. We tend to see our population is just more anxious in general, working with a gastrointestinal um, provider. Our patients are just a little bit more anxious, but we do see so many food fears. And so our program also seeks to reduce those fears to remind them Stress is bad for your digestion. You're either in fight or flight. When you're in fight or flight, your body's in run from the bear mode. You're going to spare energy. So you greatly reduce or even halt digestion at that point. If you're running from a bear, your body's not prepared for you to pick an apple off a tree and start eating it, right? You're, you need to run. You need to save your life. A lot of us are constantly in fight or flight. So you suppress that feed and breathe or rest and digest, you're turning that off when you're constantly stressed. And for people, their stress is food. I don't know if this is going to make me bloat. I have somewhere to go. I, I don't know. I can't risk eating fiber because I'm going to be really bloated at this birthday party. I'm in a wedding and I don't want to feel unwell when I'm there. So people are afraid to eat because for so long, for so many reasons, we even touched on childhood. They've been bloated. They've been uncomfortable. They've been nauseous every day. They're afraid to eat. So we really try to heal that relationship with food, get them gardening, get them back to familiarizing themselves with how beneficial whole foods are, mind, body, spirit in every way. So if somebody wanted to use your services or to connect with you, what would be the best way? What does that process look like? Yeah. So if somebody wants to join our program, they can sign up at yourgutconnection.com. We are also on Instagram, so they can link to our webpage through our Instagram. There's the link in our bio. If they want to make a one-on-one -on -one consult, if they feel like they need just more one-on-one -on -one attention, there's more deep etiology there, they can make an appointment with us at Dr. Dr. Angie Health. 
Com. And so you can schedule an appointment with myself, with James, with Dr. Angie as well. And that's anywhere in the world. So we do telemedicine. So anybody can make an appointment with us. Um, anybody can join your gut connection internationally. Um, and following us at Married to Health. So it's Married T.O. Health or following Dr. Angie. So on Instagram, she's Angie.Sadegi. To wrap it up. Let's, uh, let's take some of your advice here. Where is the best foods to get vitamin D? Great question, because plant foods can be a little bit lower in vitamin D. So one of the most abundant vitamin D plant foods is mushrooms. And I really actually like giving this tip. People always have their minds blown. Just like we absorb vitamin D from the sun, so can our food. So if you want to increase the quantity of vitamin D in your mushrooms, put them in the sun before you cook them. And it actually increases their vitamin D content. All right. But you can also have vitamin D fortified foods. So look for plant right. milk or other foods that have been fortified with vitamin D. All right. B12. Vitamin B12. Great question. So like we said, that's kind of one of our foundational supplements that we recommend someone on a plant-based diet take. You can obtain some B12 from nutritional yeast. You can't obtain some B12, small amounts from vegetables, especially like if we grow things in our house, we don't wash them that well because we know we're getting vitamin B12 from the soil microbes. But we do recommend just as an insurance policy because vitamin B12 is so important for health, take a vitamin B12 supplement. It can be sublingual. It can be spray. You can get intramuscular injection every once in a while, whatever it is. We do recommend on a plant-based diet taking a vitamin B12 supplement. And before before you go to Omega, um, for vitamin B12, I remember when I first started taking the vitamin vitamin B12 supplement, I started doing some research on it, and there were different types of vitamin B12, and they were urging me to stay away from certain types. So can you talk a little bit about that? That's a great question. So there are various types of B12. There's methyl B12, adenosyl B12, um, cyanocobalamin, methylcobalamin, um, adenosyl cobalamin. And so certain people, because we all have different genes, that's why we all look different. And certain people can process food in different ways because of their genes. And so some people cannot methylate or activate their B12. And so usually they have a gene mutation called MTHFR. If you try to pronounce it, it kind of sounds like a bad word. Um, But those with an MTHFR gene mutation cannot activate their B12 nor their folate. And so if that's the case, or if you suspect that might be the case, I oftentimes just recommend a methylated B12. So it's like a pre-activated B12 just to be sure. Um, Cyanocobalamin for a lot of people can be easier to digest, absorb, and integrate in their cells. Um, Adenosylcobalamin for some people, it really just depends. But I would say in general, if you're looking to be on the safe side, just take a methyl B12, a methyl folate if they're in combination. Good question. Yeah, true, Sean. Never thought about that because I I like that. (laughs) All right. So omega-3, everybody thinks that you can only get it from fish. Yes, absolutely. And again, fish, just like B12, is found in animal products only because they concentrate those soil microbes, which not always is the case because nowadays with factory farming, a lot of these animals aren't even eating anything that grows in the soil. So meat eaters sometimes are deficient in B12 as well because their food source is deficient in B12. Mm-hmm. And so with omega-3, fish are obtaining their omega-3s by eating sea vegetables like kelp and seaweed. And so 
algae is an abundant source of omega-3, and it contains the two types of omega-3, ALA and EPA. And the concern with a plant-based diet is if you are eating algae, you're eating kelp, you're eating seaweed, uh, the ALA and EPA are not efficiently converted into an active usable form. And so we say, you know, if you're getting abundant omega-3s like flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, algae, kelp, a spirulina is a great source of omega-3. Um, other nuts and seeds like walnuts, there's a little bit in Brazil nuts. If you know you're tracking, and we recommend using tracking devices like Chronometer is one of our favorite apps. Um, if you're tracking and you're hitting your targets because you're very, very regimented and you know that you are getting your required amounts of omega-3, you might not need a supplement. I would say that's a low percent of the population, even me, like I'm not eating the same things every single day, I'm not eating two tablespoons of walnuts and this amount of chia and this amount of hemp. So we do take an algae omega as one of our supplements. And so we said B12, D and omega are the three supplements we recommend for those on a plant-based diet, but you can still obtain amounts from your food. So if you know most days you're getting enough, but not every day, then just take the supplement a couple of days a week. And uh, we actually recently partnered with a really cool spirulina farm. They're called Go Spiral. And they have made the first ever food grade spirulina because most are supplement grade. And keep in mind, I'm talking about supplements, but be very cautious where you're getting your supplements because there is no FDA regulation with supplements. I could go put dirt in a capsule outside and sell it at CVS and say it's minerals and no one's going to stop me. They're not regulated. No one's checking wow. the amounts are actually there unless there's third-party testing. So now we're seeing more NSF certification. We are seeing some companies are doing that third-party testing, but I do tend to recommend physician-grade supplement lines. So there are different companies who hire a third-party company to test batch test every batch that they make to ensure that the amount that's claimed on the label is actually the amount you get. Because fun fact, if your supplement doesn't have an expiration date, they are only ensuring that the amount they say is in there is there upon manufacture. And so who knows, that might have been manufactured two years ago, that might have sat in a hot warehouse that might have been in the store for a year, it might have zero to none, or, you know, little to none by the time you actually take it. So you want to see if there's an expiration date on your supplements, because that ensures that when it expires, it has the amount that's stated on the label. And so these are usually manufactured with more than the amount that's stated on the label, but they want to ensure that at least that amount is there upon expiration. But a lot of these supplements don't have that third-party testing. So you can't ensure that it's not free of things like excipients, heavy metals, um, fillers, and other pollutants and toxins. So you want to really, again, get your supplements from a high-quality source. So we do advise patients on supplements. We have a an online program, an online database that we use to send people high-quality supplements from companies that do that third-party testing. So all the things that the people in your gut connection take, they all come through those companies. And in closing, I want to, first of all, thank you so much, both of you, for being on the podcast and for sharing so much knowledge. That's the beautiful thing about podcasts is you can sit down, you can listen, you can get a starting point for taking control of your health, taking control of your life, and then leave with another resource, you know, being able to reach out to you, be able to contact you and, you know, sign up for your program. And um, so tell us one more time, where can they learn more about you? So on Instagram, Facebook, we are married to health. 
We also have Your Gut Connection on both Facebook and Instagram. You can find us oftentimes on Dr. Angie Sadegi's stories. And um, joining our SIBO, we mentioned it's the first ever SIBO IBS program that's plant-based. You can join that at yourgutconnection.com because plants are your friend. Fiber is your friend. We want everyone to eat more veggies. If that's our only goal in life, it's just eat your plants. Do you have any closing remarks, Abba? Thank you. And I, even myself, I continue to learn. And that's what I love about when we do our podcasts. I get to learn from actual professionals in the industry, ones who are plant-based. And it makes me feel a little less alone as a medical professional mm -hmm. that is probably the only vegan in her department, for example. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We just love sharing this. We love spreading it as far and wide as we can. All right. And thank you guys for listening, for tuning into the SoFlow Vegans podcast. We'll have show notes. We've been taking a lot of, of notes while this podcast has been going on to make sure that you have those links. You Maybe there's a word in there that you didn't know. We'll do some research and get it for you. And um, yeah, tune into the future episodes of the SoFlow Vegan podcast. Like Alba mentioned this earlier, this is our third season. We have a lot of amazing guests, a lot of um, guests in the medical um, in the medical world. So we're going to be giving you information about the health side of things. We have some guests from the environmental side, as well as the animal rights side. So we like to make sure we keep that holistic trinity intact. So thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you guys next time.